If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. We're pleased to bring you a special summer offer from our sister magazines. You can try three issues of BBC History magazine or BBC History Revealed for just £5. That's a saving of up to 72% off the shop price. Plus, you'll receive free UK delivery on each issue. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit our official online store, buysubscriptions.com slash podcast 2021. If you're based in the US, you also won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast 2021. Please be aware that both these offers end on the 31st of August 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As the 29th iteration of the Summer Olympic Games is staged in Tokyo, our production editor Spencer Mizen was joined by David Goldblatt, author of The Games, A Global History of the Olympics, to discuss everything you wanted to know about the history of the sporting bonanza. It's a story that takes in terrible poetry, violent wrestling, Cold War grudge matches, and of course, awe-inspiring athletic achievements. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media platforms. David, we're here to talk about the Olympic Games, the latest and much delayed iteration of which is being staged in Tokyo this summer. This is, I believe, the 29th Summer Olympics since the first modern games were held in Athens back in 1896. But for our first listener question, I want to rewind a couple of millennia to the ancient Olympics staged in Greece. Mr. De Weave on Instagram has asked, for how many years did the ancient Olympics run and which athletic disciplines did they include? So the ancient Olympics run for around 1,400 years, I would say. It's quite a long time. Of course, their form and format Um, changed quite a lot in that era. So if we go back to about the 11th century before the Christian uh, era, um, uh, Olympia actually emerges as a local shrine. And it looks from the archaeological record that there are some kind of festive games of some kind going on, you know, in the 10th century BCE. By the time we get to the 7th or 8th century, people are travelling. People are travelling from all over Greece um, to attend these games. And they are part of a wider Hellenic culture of games and festivals, of which Olympia is just one. Um, So something close to what we... Uh, if you like, the main form that the ancient games takes is emerging around the 7th, 8th century. And by the time you get to the 5th century, um, 
then it takes its, I suppose, classical form, where you have people from all over the Hellenic world. So not just mainland Greece, but all the islands from what is today Turkey and North Africa and Italy traveling um, uh, to the games. And this continues to the second century BCE when the Romans arrive and the Romans take over Greece. And as with most things with the Romans, they look around and go, oh, this is good. We'll make this our thing. I mean, this is what they do with the Greek gods. It's like, oh, you've got Zeus. Yeah, we like that. We'll have him. We'll call him Jupiter, but same same deal. Um, and they carry on pretty much as before. But of course, the infrastructure is a lot better. The uh, Romans are going, what? There's no clean water here. You don't have hotels. There's no baths. We need baths. Um, and this runs very successfully. It's very popular and continues to be so uh, until around 300 uh, of the uh, CE. And in 320, uh, 325, Constantine makes Christianity the official religion uh, of the uh, Roman Empire. And while the Olympics are in no sense specifically banned or affected by this shift, um, there is now pressure, uh, cultural, legal and political on expressions of pagan religion. And we must remember that the Olympics in this era is first and foremost not a sporting event. It is a religious festival. It is a celebration of the god Zeus. Everything else is kind of secondary. Um, and so it becomes, you know, the Olympics begins to basically disappear. And so by the time we get to around 400, 420, that's the last written evidence of any kind of event happening in Olympia. And then the thing, the thing kind of disappears until it is revived intellectually and archaeologically over a thousand years later. Um, and in that era, from what we can see, and it really is amazing because the Greeks never really wrote down, like there's no, there's no program, you know, there are no notes for when you go to uh, Olympia. Um, but the events seem to be threefold. You've got fighting, you've got athletics, and you've got horses. So the fighting is wrestling. Um, boxing, uh, and something called pancration, which is um, basically like all-in wrestling, where you're allowed to do anything other than stub your opponent's eyes out. Um, the horses is um, sort of straight racing uh, on a horse um, uh, around a track, and then you have chariot racing. Um, and the interesting thing there, of course, is that the uh, laurels, when they were won, were not awarded to the people on the horses or in the chariot, but to the people who owned the horses. Um, and then finally, you have the athletics, and that is running. And again, we don't quite know the distances, but there seems to be basically a sprint that is one length of the athletics arena. Then there's the two lengths version. And then there's um, an event called the long one, which seems to be, you know, like maybe like a 5,000 meters, but nobody knows. And then we have the pentathlon. And again, it's a little unclear precisely what that involved, but it does seem to involve a discus, it seems to involve throwing some kind of spear. There are some weird weights being thrown, and then there's running and wrestling. And that's basically your lot, and nothing really changes for over a thousand years once these events are kind of coded in the seventh, eighth century as the Olympic events. Okay, so moving forward to the, the late 
19th century. We, we have a question here on, on Instagram from Leah Welsh, who wants to know what inspired the birth of the modern games and who was the, who was the driving force be, behind their re-emergence? So there's a simple answer which is wrong and a complex answer which is long. The simple answer is Baron de Coubertin, a French Catholic aristocrat um, who was the founder and entrepreneur that created the IOC. Um, and his inspiration, if you believe his own very, very unreliable memoirs and documents, is a child is a childhood obsession with Olympia and the Olympics that burned all through his life until he got the opportunity to realise it. And then there's the real world. So the Olympics disappears from European consciousness. Uh, from the 4th, 5th century CE for pretty much a thousand years. Most of the texts in which mentions of it are available disappear. Who's reading those documents? Nobody's reading Pliny, you know, in the, uh, you know, in 1066. These documents disappear. And um, Olympia itself um, is uh, hit by a tsunami in the 6th century CE and disappears under a layer of Mediterranean silt. So even archaeologically, it pretty much disappears. And during the Renaissance, all of those um, Greek and Roman works reappear. And suddenly in Europe, people have access to this idea, oh, they these games at the Olympics. And so you have, from about the 17th century onwards, you have um, in popular culture and literature, um, people kind of calling stuff the Olympics or Olympian. You find it in Milton's poetry. You find it in Shakespeare. Um, you have uh, the Dover, Robert Dover's Olympics, which are basically a kind of rural games of the 17th century being given the Olympics moniker. In the late 18th and early 19th century, people have now really absorbed a bit more information about what the ancient Olympics are, and a modern sporting culture is beginning to emerge. And those two things together produce a whole series of attempts to revive or reinterpret the Olympics way before Baron de Coubertin gets to it. So you've got, during the French Revolution, they rewrite the calendar and they discover, what, we've got to have a leap year in the calendar. And a leap day. What should we do with that leap day? And it's actually proposed in the French Revolutionary Parliament in the 1790s that we should have a Republican Olympics. And they stage a French Revolutionary popular Olympic sporting festival in the streets of Paris in the 1790s. It then disappears as the revolution collapses and France moves on to invading much of the rest of Europe. Um, you then have attempts in Sweden. You have attempts in Germany um, to, uh, to revive some kind of Olympic sporting festival. But the really important ones are in Greece and in England. And in England, you've got Dr. Penny Brooks, who is a uh, rural GP committed to improving the health and well-being of the rural poor by encouraging them in sensible, rational exercise. And part of his strategy in Shropshire is to stage a kind of cross between a drunken rural festival and a kind of faux classical Olympic sporting gymkhana. And this is the Much Wenlock Olympics um, or Olympic festivals, which carry on through the 1840s, 1850s, 
revived, revived later on and are locally a very popular event. Um, you have similar uh, attempts to revive the notion of the Olympics in Greece in the late 19th century, where Greek nationalists are kind of, because Greece as a modern nation state is only created in the 1830s. So it's like, what is modern Greece? Who are we? Hmm, maybe we're like the Greek Olympians. Maybe if we restage the Olympics, this is a connection to this deep past. And so you have attempts by basically nationalists to revive the Olympics as a kind of almost like a sort of battlefield recreation, a recreation, the way people recreate the American Civil War in costume, right? Similar kind of thing. So all of this is floating around in the 1870s and 1880s. Into this comes Baron de Coubertin. And Baron de Coubertin's main mission initially is, as a French aristocrat, trying to work out, like, what is my mission in modern France? You know, what is, what is the purpose of life? You know, um, the aristocracy has been moved to one side here. How do they do it in Britain? How have they managed to kind of stay in charge? What's their secret? And he works, he decides after a whole series of trips to British institutions and English public schools that, of course, it's sport. It's the sporting culture of um, England's public schools and universities that are training this morally and mentally and physically powerful ruling class. And he wants some of that in France. And he becomes a very, very enthusiastic um, uh, promoter and organiser of amateur sports and sports culture through the 1880s. But he's not an Olympian. And then he puts an advert in the press, as people used to do in those days, saying, I am seeking a, a correspondent in England to exchange letters on the meaning of sport in the modern era. And Dr Penny Brooks writes to him and says, Baron, come to March Wenlock. Let me show you how we're doing it. And de Coubertin goes to Much Wenlock. And we don't know all of the details, but they put on a fantastic, um, you know, sort of faux Olympic rural festival. Um, and uh, at this point, um, Penny Brooks introduces de Coubertin to his whole notion of Olympic revival, because he's been trying that in England with other people and it's not been working. And de Coubertin goes away and suddenly out of nowhere and with only one reference in his entire life to Dr. Penny Brooks, um, he's suddenly a convinced Olympian. And in 1892, he um, stages a conference at the Sorbonne where he first announces the call for a modern Olympic Games. And de Coubertin's genius is to bring together a whole bunch of ideas and people that had not been fused before behind the Olympian revival movement to actually make it happen. And at the core, at the core of it, is his notion, it's almost a kind of modern cult of the neo-Hellenic athletic gentleman. That is what the Olympics is about. It is, as he said himself, a celebration of manly virtue. You know, this is what the, this is the peak of what sport can deliver in the modern world, is the cultured sporting gentleman of the English public school or the American blue blood Ivy League universities. Um, 
To this, of course, he adds, and you know, this is a, uh, the peace dimension of it. You know, he's quite an interesting intellectual dilante in this era, and he's taking courses at French universities in Paris, where he's meeting all the leading members of the peace movement of the late 19th century. And the Baron has a very kind of aristocratic idea of diplomacy and peacemaking. Remember, the late 19th century is an era where, you know, the crown prince of somewhere would call an international conference and everybody would come along and take it seriously. And the idea of a person-to-person -person diplomacy between powerful white men from the aristocracies of Europe and North America um, could have a real and serious impact on the conduct of international affairs and peacemaking. And so that is the vision. It's like not that we're going to bring everyone together in that kind of ethos. Yeah, so you've got kind of your aristocratic peace movement, you've got your public school kind of ethos going on. And his other genius is to connect with the Greek royal family, who are Germans. And that's a problem. It's like, we're Germans. How authentic are we looking? We've been placed on the Greek throne by the Consul of Europe. None of us speak Greek when we arrive here. Um, and so they become very enthusiastic supporters of a kind of Greek nationalist Olympic revivalism, yeah, to show our Greek deep cultural connections. And it's the combination at this uh, conference held in 1894 in Paris where de Coubertin brings these energies together and manages just to get the agreement of the Greeks to stage the first thing. So the first games in 1896 is a really interesting and complicated mixture of um, ideological purpose, um, moral inverted commas vision and um, dynastic and nationalist politics. So that's the complicated answer, forgive me. <laughs> it was a very good one, though. And so what, what did these early games look like? How much public interest did they attract? That's a question from TW on Twitter. It's a really great question. I mean, the first Olympics are all a bit different. So in 1896 in Athens... You know, this is a major event for the Greek royal house and eventually the Greek government. So at the level of kind of Athens, people are taking quite a lot of notice of it. Um, and, um, you know, the public um, are engaged, certainly in the uh, bigger stadium events. Um, but it's worth remembering much of what's going on in those games is kind of incomprehensible to the average Athenian. I mean, partly because it's like people swimming in the Bay of Piraeus two and a half miles out to sea, right? So who's looking at that? Um, but also take something like fencing. So fencing for your average Athenian, indeed your average late 19th century Greek, it's like this is the martial art of the European aristocracy. Who's interested in fencing? However, what you do find at the fencing event is that you've got like four crowned, you know, you've got people from four different royal houses around Europe. So some of the events and some of the moments, you know, for a little sliver of the European aristocracy are really interested. For most of the public, you know, there's nothing until um, Spiros Luis wins the marathon. 
And again, that's kind of part of the genius of de Coubertin is to accept and promote the marathon as this great spectacular event. And that captures people's imagination in, uh, in Athens. 1900 is a very, very odd Olympics because it's actually... Um, the Exhibition Universale, the, um, you know, one of the world's fairs is going on. And the French government had long planned to have a huge sporting festival alongside it. And de Coubertin went to them and said, well, why don't you make this the Olympics? And they looked at him and said, who are you? What? Your mad neo-pagan Hellenic cult is going to be taking over the sports side of a celebration of Republican popular France. I don't think so, Mr. Coubertin. See you later. So the 1900 Olympics really are a kind of post-hoc invention of de Coubertin, who tried to claim that the events that were basically just amateurs, because there were lots of professional events, for example, there, uh, and big kind of pop events involving kids and women and so on and so forth they, in, in a way it was sort of retrospectively deemed to be the 1900 Olympics and consequently lots of people only got their medals in the 1920s like in the post like oh by the way did you know that you won a gold medal at the 1900 Olympics 1904 is uh, in St. Louis and again the Olympics is kind of appended to the St. Louis uh, World's Fair, the Louisiana Purchase Centenary Exhibition, which is this extraordinary and huge kind of cultural and economic event of which the sports is actually just a very little bit. And, um, you know, most of the public then again are going like, actually, I think I'll go on the fun fair rides because this is like incomprehensible to me. Um, and the moment when that sort of changes and the Olympics actually becomes an event of substantial public note with reach beyond this very small kind of aristocratic elite who are running it and participating in it is London 1908 and Stockholm 1912. And in London 1908, finally someone who understands show business, which of course is what we're really dealing with here, is in charge. Imre Khalifi, a Hungarian migrant Jew uh, and uh, extraordinary theatrical entrepreneur is running um, the uh, Franco-British Imperial Exhibition in White City. And that is what the Olympics is appended to. And this dude says, you know, you haven't got a stadium, guys, but I will build you a stadium. Yeah, you give me the event, I'll take the ticket money, but I'll sort you out with the stadium. And Finally, it becomes part of a bigger event that people begin to find, the public begin to find a bit more comprehensible. But even then, in the first week of the uh, the Olympics, you can see it's virtually empty at White City, you know, partly because the rain, a bit like it is like summer in England, <laughs> not good. And they have to cut the prices. The Daily Mail kind of puts out a call for people to kind of do their patriotic duty and show up. So it's still, and then by the time you get even like Antwerp in 1920, after the First World War, there are almost, there are two Olympics going on. There's the Olympics that is still bound to the old aristocratic order of amateur gentlemen in the athletic stadium where nobody's going because nobody's really very interested in like throwing the javelin. However, in the box 
boxing that's being held um, uh, in the zoo in Antwerp or at the football game, right, which are the sports of working class Belgium in the early 20th century, overflowing. It's completely overflowing. And I suppose it's only really those two worlds actually begin to collide and the Olympics becomes a popular uh, globally reported spectacle. That's 24 28 and above all Los Angeles 1932 and that's the moment truly when the Olympics becomes a you know the, the public begin to care because finally Hollywood's in charge. Great now I have here a question from JV Barreto on Instagram who asks what were the international repercussions of Jesse Owens win at the Olympic Games of 1936? It's really interesting. The Owens moment is so important and so misreported and understood in many ways. And I'm just going to give a bit of context to Jesse Owens to understand the nature of race politics in the United States and the politicization of these things. So the big issue before 36 in America is that you've got Jewish Catholic organized and Catholic organizations and trade unions going, hello, have you seen what they're doing to Jews in Germany? Have you seen what's happening to Jews in athletics? Why are there no Jews in the German team? We cannot possibly send a team. We should be boycotting the 36 games. And Avery Brundage, a uh, unpleasant man, um, a uh, businessman from Chicago who was in charge of the uh, American Olympic Committee and would later become president of the IOC, um, pipes up and says, I will go to Germany and take a look at how things are going. And he goes to Germany and, uh, you know, interviews members of the Jewish community while the Gestapo are sitting in the room uh, and everybody tells them that everything is fine, which is how it worked later on down the line with South Africa and um, reports back and says, no problem. Everything's good. They're going to allow Jews to compete. They're going to have a Jew in the in the trials. The, uh, in the end, the American Olympic Committee, after a huge political battle, decides to go. So that's the kind of context that we're sort of dealing with. Okay, once we get to the repercussions of, of Owens, um, I mean, actually, for most of the world, it's a minor issue. You know, in the United States, it's a big story. And often the way we understand world history is through the eyes of the United States. But much of the rest of the world is sort of going, well, that worked quite well. The Germans don't seem really quite as bad as we thought they are. Yes, they're, they're a bit bombastic, but it's terribly impressive. It's pretty much actually what you're reading in most of the press. Um in the United States, you know, there's a division here. Uh, I mean, obviously, Owens is celebrated wildly in the black press in the United States, because, of course, the press is very segregated in those days. And in the north of the United States, he is considered, you know, it's a great sporting achievement. There is not a single picture of him in a newspaper published in the South. You know, I mean, actually, it's being completely ignored. Um, and it is only really in the post-World War II era and during World War II, when the United States needs to fashion, you know, its anti-fascist credentials, that that story takes on such a massive place in the historical record. I mean, you know, Owen's achievement in the stadium, you know, his athletic achievement um, um, 
is not a myth. And there is no doubt we know from the private papers of Goebbels, for example, um, that the they were deeply rankled by this. Um, and they referred to Owens as one of um, America's uh, coloured auxiliaries, is the way they referred to them. Um, so they were deeply rankled by it, for sure. And yeah, I mean, it really doesn't make any... Uh, it doesn't. If you've got a racial hierarchy of the world, yeah, it's going to disturb that profoundly. Um, but in terms of international terms, um, in either highlighting, you know, Jim Crow in the United States, the plight of African-American athletes in US racist sports culture, um, or understanding it as some kind of defeat for the racist ideology of the Nazis, that is all manufactured much later down the line. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. At the age of 17, she became a single mother. And at 19, she went out and not only won three gold medals, but turned down Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay, for a date because she thought he was a bit too lippy. Right, can I now um, turn to the question, a question from KFO723 on Instagram, who is asking... Can you explain the presence of art competitions in the early Olympics? Now, I've got to admit, I didn't even know personally that there were arts competitions in, in these Olympics. So what, what's the story there? So Baron de Coubertin's take on these things is to say sport is an ineradicable and incredibly important part of any culture. It should be considered intellectually and socially um, on a par with the arts. You know, you have, you know, part of your society's culture is its theatre, its visual arts. Well, so too its sport. Um, and he likes, you know, that there should be a dialogue between art and sport, that there should be sport that aspires to kind of notions of beauty, and there should be art that engages with all the great things about sport. And in 1908... Uh, 1907, maybe it's early 1908, he says to the Swedish organising committee of the uh, Stockholm Games for 1912, so it's probably actually about 1911 this conversation's going on, he says to them, how about an arts competition, guys? And uh, the Swedes slightly raise their eyebrow and they say, well, we'll have, a, we'll have a word with our artistic community. And they do go and kind of talk to, you know, the Swedish, you know, Royal Academy and its equivalents. And everyone's going, sport? Please forget it. We're not what you want to give gold medals. No, we're not. We're just not engaging. Uh, but the Baron was undaunted, and he announced a uh, Olympic um, uh, arts competition to run parallel to the nineteen twelve games um, that he was uh, that was going to be organised from uh, you know his own home address. And he puts out the call for sculpture, for pictures, for poetry. And the most extraordinary thing about this is that a poem called Ode to Sport wins and uh, gets a gold medal for poetry. And, I mean, to call it doggerel is unfair to all the doggerel in the world. This is not a good poem. Um, and it's a slightly mad Olympian celebration of the power of sport. And it wins the gold medal. And it turns out 
that it's written by Baron de Coubertin under an assumed name. So he creates his own arts competition under a pseudonym he puts his own poem in and then he's judge and jury of this thing and gives himself the gold medal. <laughs> Which is... I just find extraordinary that that is not a bigger part of Olympic history. Having set it up in 1912, he does find after the war that there is some support for this notion amongst the organisers. And so 1920, 1924, you've got, you know, through um, the 1930s, you do have these arts exhibitions. And on a number of occasions, you have some quite well-known artists actually submit work. So Jack Yates, the younger brother of W.B. Yates, and probably Ireland's sort of greatest and most important painter of the first half of the 20th century, uh, wins a gold medal. In fact, I think it's Ireland's first Olympic gold medal in 1924. By the 1950s, people are beginning to have second thoughts. I mean, this is always de Coubertin's baby anyway, and the Baron is dead by then. And um, the last one, I think, is 52 in Helsinki. I mean, the one in 48 in London is a sort of slightly farcical, amateurish, really, affair. And by 1952, people are saying, like, do we really have to do this? And I think 52 is the last. What it turns into, though, in a way, is more interesting in that people can see there is a case for having a dialogue of arts, architecture and sport. Why not? What a great thing. This is what becomes the kind of Olympics cultural festivals or cultural programs. And particularly the, um, the Japanese, uh, the Mexicans at 68, the Germans in 72 start putting a lot of time and money into it. I mean, Munich puts on something in the order of a thousand classical music concerts in the two years running up to the Olympics. Um, and the, uh, the Mexicans similarly, all sorts of arts projects, all sorts of music projects. Um, and this has grown in significance over that era. So, you know, when we see um, the arts programme, for example, associated with London 2012, its roots really are back in the 60s as a response to how do we occupy the space if we're not giving gold medals and silver medals for, you know, statues of archers. Okay, here's a question from ProQuest eBook on Instagram. And that is, who advocated for women's involvement in the games? And in addition to that, I mean, how fierce was op opposition to women's participation? Fierce. It's a cult of, you know, masculine sporting virtue. Uh, and as Baron de Coubertin said, you know, the Olympics should be a display of manly virtue for which the reward is the polite applause of women. So that's how most of the IOC, most of upper-class sporting culture is thinking about women and women's sports in this era. Um, and so there are virtually no women, there are no women participants in 1896. There are in 1900, but it's only a fluke because it's really the French Republican Games. Um, and 1904, 1908, 1912, You've got a few women swimmers. Um, you've got a few women archers. No athletics, no gymnastics. Basically, very, very few women. And this changes after the First World War. 
You know, the First World War changes gender relations, certainly in Europe and North America, in really profound ways in terms of the workforce, conceptions of femininity, and access of women to sporting facilities. And the pressure's on, and the pressure's really coming from a kind of nascent women's sports movement. And the key figure in that is a woman called Alice Milliat, uh, a French rower who became a sports kind of journalist and activist. And she staged the first Women's Olympics in 1920. Uh, and there's another one in 1921 and another one in 1924 and got the backing of the French government to do so. And they called on women from all over Western Europe and North America to come and participate in athletics, in gymnastics, and actually, interestingly, in a whole series of other kind of more feminine or feminized events. You know, I think that was the great thing there. They're saying, you know, sports culture shouldn't just be about, you know, competition in formal events. It's about dance it's about movement it's about you know zumba i mean basically they're doing zumba at the women's olympics in 1920 and they are now banging on the door of the olympics and saying you know you have to let women in you have to let um uh, women participate in other events so in 1928 you have the first women's athletics event at the olympics it's not till 1928 that you see women running and again the kind of the extraordinary thing about that Olympics is that the women run the 800 metres. And not surprisingly, at the end of the 800 metres, like men, the participants look absolutely knackered. And photos of this go all round the world with a discourse and headlines of running is dangerous for women. Women should not overexert themselves. All of this kind of phony medical uh, discourse. And as a consequence, women do not run longer than 200 metres at the Olympics until 1968, because it's deemed bad for their health. Um, so it's a struggle. I mean, it's not until 1984 that women run the marathon. As late as the LA Games of 1984, um, you know, it's still only 20% participation. I mean, we're close to 50-50 now. Uh, and that's a whole nother interesting debate. But back in the day, yeah, opposition is absolutely militant. Here's a question for Dee Schmitty on Instagram. Can you explain what went on with the blood in the water match in 1956? And kind of leading on from that, I wanted to ask, what are the other great grudge matches of Olympic history? So the blood in the water match is a water polo quarterfinal, I think, between the Soviet Union and Hungary. And the Melbourne Olympics takes place in, uh, I think it's October, November of 1956, um, before um, the summer schedule was kind of imposed by American television. And of course, earlier on that year, the Soviet Union, the Red Army and its allies had invaded Hungary and suppressed the Hungarian uprising which was a you know, post-Stalinist attempt to create socialism with a human face and withdraw from some of the controls of the Soviet Union over Hungary. Add to that the fact that water polo is a very rough sport. And in 1956, no underwater cameras, amateur levels of refereeing. It is rough. Um, and then top that with the fact that you've got a lot of Hungarian emigres 
in Australia, who are living in Melbourne, who've emigrated there after the Second World War, often to escape the communists. And, you know, you've got like 2,000 of these guys showing up uh, at the pool with big Hungarian flags, with the communist insignia of the era cut out of them. So you've got those guys baying, you've got the Hungarian uprising, and you've got water polo. I mean, it's sort of a miracle that it, it, wasn't, it wasn't worse than actually it turned out. In terms of grudge matches at the Olympics, I've been thinking about this. There are... I don't think there's anything actually quite comparable. I mean, there have been fights and scuffles and, you know, like the Pakistani team felt for refereeing reasons that they lost the uh, 1972 field hockey gold medal to India, which is obviously a big deal. And they behaved very badly on the, uh, on the uh, podium and refused to accept their medals. But that's not quite a kind of... I'm not sure that's really a grudge match. Um, I mean, certainly the 1972 bar men's basketball final between um, the United States and the Soviet Union, you know, that was decided after multiple uh, restarts at the end of the game where the Soviets get a kind of last minute basket, the American thinks unfairly, uh, has had a lot of grudge in it. And I suppose the little but underreported 1972 ice hockey game at the Winter Olympics between the Czechs and the uh, Soviet Union. And of course, the Czechs had experienced what the Hungarians had experienced, but in 1968. And I would say, have a little look on YouTube, but it's amazing how many pucks are being launched by the Czechs, not at the goal, but at the heads of their opponents. And not just those on the pitch, but those on the sidelines. What would you say are the three greatest sporting achievements of the game's history? I know this is a big question, but if you could rank them, how would you? Um, it's completely impossible. Yeah. There are so many criteria. So all I can do for you is say three that mean a lot to me that I think are kind of extraordinary. And that is not in any way to denigrate sure, or undermine sure. anybody else's great achievements. Number one is Wilma Rudolph. Uh, US athlete, three gold medals in the sprints, one relay at the 1960 Games. And Wilma um, rose to those three gold medals on simply the most impossible, underprivileged background I think that any athlete has ever had to face. She was the uh, 20th of 22 children of an African-American family living in the Jim Crow Deep South in the 1940s. She was undernourished as a child. She had polio and her leg in irons. She had pneumonia as a child. She only began to walk without an iron at the age of 11. At the age of 17, she became a single mother. And at 19, she went out and not only won three gold medals, but turned down Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay, for a date because she thought he was a bit too lippy. I mean, I just like think it's unbelievable that Wilma Rudolph should be able to surmount those multiple intersecting levels of injustice and inequality and, you know, win with grace and power. So she's my number one. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Liz Hartel, who was the first woman to win uh, an equestrian medal, you know, in an event that was mixed. And um, she won a dressage silver medal in 52. 
uh, and she was paralysed below the thigh. So this is the first disabled athlete to win um, a, a medal in the able-bodied games. And I think that's a pretty extraordinary achievement. Um, you can't not, and this is sort of, again, it's just a personal preference, but like Usain Bolt, just like not one event, not the whole deal, three Olympics, and to retain so much humanity so much humility, so much good humour, to bring so much joy from so little and to be the fastest human being ever recorded. Yeah, okay. I'm going to put one out there for you saying. And then, like, my like on the bench, I'm going to give a shout-out to uh, Abidi uh, Bikela, the, uh, in 1960, the uh, Ethiopian who returns to the heart of the empire that colonised Ethiopia, Rome 1960, and runs the marathon in bare feet and smashes, smashes it, you know, and completes it by running through, uh, you know, the uh, triumphal arch of Trajan. That was David Goldblatt. The Games, A Global History of the Olympics, is published by Pam McMillan. You can find a link in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, then on Tuesday, Christopher Harding will be looking at the last time that Tokyo hosted the Games, back in 1964, and how it redefined the nation in a post-war world. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Meg Foster about Australian bushrangers. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.